This morning, our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 31. And it can be seen on the screens behind me, or if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on page 926. Please stand. (laughs) You remembered when I didn't. (laughs) The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is God's word. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Becca Rideout. I'm kind of new here and kind of old here. Um, My family first started attending Westgate when I was 12 years old. And um, not long after that, Um, Mark and Chris Crooks also joined the Westgate family. Mark was asked to be an assistant pastor, and one of his tasks were to work with the youth, of which I was one. And so um, he and Chris um, fed us and loved us. Uh, We met in their house and watched Amy Grant movie video, music videos, and ate lasagna and did all sorts of fun things together. And they became the very first two people that I knew personally that said yes in obedience to God's uh, call to them and went to the mission field. And so it was really uh, amazing to me as a middle schooler to see people that I knew that I had eaten lasagna with um, go somewhere. And it, and it opened my eyes to the reality that it's normal people that go to different places in the world. They're not superhumans. They're people that eat lasagna and watch Amy Grant music videos. <laughs> and um, so then later on in high school, our, our youth group took a trip and visited them where they were serving in Venezuela. And it was there that God spoke to me and said, you might not be a Bible translator or a pastor, which those are not my gifts, but you know, you can teach. And they were working at the time at a school, and it was there that I realized that any gift that God gives us can be used in his service. And that's where I committed to working overseas one day. So Mark and Chris have been very influential in my life, and um, it's a joy to welcome them with you this morning and um, see what God has to say to us through them. Mark? Oh, wow, 
Good. I didn't know that lasagna had such a huge influence. And we didn't even really know what real lasagna was until, you know, later when we would go to Italy. So, um, wow, this is great to be here. I, I told Brandon that um, I've been looking forward to this opportunity. And every time we come back to Westgate, it's like we're, we're with our people. And some of you, I know, probably have never seen us before because you're new, and we're like really from the dark ages. Um, but it's so good to be here and just to sense what God is doing here and to think of the scope of what he is doing around the world through people who are associated with, with you, with this body of believers, and they're, and they're all over the place. And so... What fun to sing in Zulu. Um, I was joking around that I was going to translate everything that they said, but thanks for putting that on the screen. So um, I didn't have to do that. <laughs> Actually, Zulu is not one of the languages that, um, that we learned. But um, so imagine our excitement just in thinking about how God's reaching out all over the world today, singing a song in another language. Imagine the excitement of God himself as he listens to the praise of his people and as we dream about the day when we will one day be with him and every tribe and every tongue um, shouting out to the Lord. What a great hope that we have. So, um, on your screen is a family picture and I put the names there so that you could... um, just kind of see who everyone is and, and how we've grown. Uh, Anna was born in Natick, so she's, she's our only New Englander. And um, the rest were born somewhere else in the world. Uh, she has uh, Ben, her husband, and then Emma and William. And um, then Chris, of course, is standing next to Anna. Then Right next to her is Sam or Ben, who's 13, and Sam, who's 11. Then uh, Becca, who's still living at home with us. She's 24. She's just finished culinary school, and uh, she's working. Has a boyfriend, and but if you need a personal chef, um, she's available. So um, keep that in mind. She's she's good. And um, then there's Josh and Elisa, who are missionaries in Germany. And they have their little son, Judah. You remember last year, some of you, that um, they had another baby. And she was only with us for about 27 days, I think, and passed away. And um, uh, due to a heart condition, she had half of a heart when she was born. And But God has used this tremendously in our lives. And one of the things that's been so interesting to us and a blessing to us is as the body of Christ has comforted us, it's like that comfort has gone into a a savings bank that we've been able to use then to comfort other people. And that's exactly what the scripture says. Comfort others with the comfort that you have received. And so as the body of Christ activates that among us, it's just a, a wonderful experience. And, um, I asked Josh just a day or so ago on the phone um, if I could do this, but they're pregnant and just announced that. So 
as they move through this season of grief, remembering Jacqueline, um, they're also expecting and God's giving them new hope. So we're excited for them. Um, Okay, so um, go ahead to the next slide, and this is our topic. Uh, Cross-cultural ministry, reaching our international neighbors. And I love your theme. Um, Here I am, Lord, use me. Uh, Here we are, Lord, use us. And um, for, for some of you, you know that we recently transitioned from Italy to uh, North America. We left Westgate in 88 to go to Venezuela. Um, went from there after 15 years to Italy, uh, doing church planting in both of those places. And now we're here in North America, heading up something brand new um, in, in the U.S. and Canada, and that is work among internationals. We have 15 families working all over um, uh, mostly in the United States, one family in Edmonton, Canada. And um, we're, we're helping the church recognize opportunities and go cross-culturally. And so I love this topic. Uh, I have really two goals uh, that I want to, to get across today. One is give you a, just a kind of a whirlwind uh, biblical background as to what our mission is uh, with our international neighbors. And then I want to get really practical and talk about how we can ease our apprehension and how we can enhance um, our, our witness. Because um, no, matter, no matter who you are, or where you've been, um, how many times you have shared with other people or if you've never shared with someone before, there's apprehension. And there's the need to enhance how we um, how we witness and how we share and live the gospel. So, um, so in the process, I was looking for some ways, some videos that I could show you, more interesting than me, and I found this one that takes a biblical um, a, a biblical background and squashes it into five minutes. And so it says everything that I would love to say but it does it better and in a shorter amount of time. So, let's watch this. The world is in crisis. The number of people forcibly displaced by war, conflict, or persecution recently reached a record high of 60 million. That includes over 15 million refugees. All over the world, people are migrating in search of a better life for themselves and for their children. The result is huge population shifts. As of last year, 14% of America's population was foreign-born. It's estimated that over 42% of Sydney, Australia's population is foreign-born. Our demographic landscape is changing dramatically, and we can easily allow the multitude of cultural voices, from political parties to media outlets, drive the way we feel about the world moving from all nations to all nations. As believers, though, the only outside voice we should care about is God's. So what does the Bible say about God's heart for the foreigner? Depending on your Bible translation, you'll see the words aliens, sojourners, foreigners, and strangers over 100 times in Scripture. In Deuteronomy alone, God commands his people to love the foreigner, use ties to bless the foreigners, assemble with foreigners to listen to God's word, 
invite foreigners to holidays and feasts, and to take care of the physical needs of foreigners. Why would God issue such commands? Again, Deuteronomy makes it clear. Because the Israelites were once foreigners in Egypt. Because the Israelites were slaves and God redeemed them. And, ultimately, so that others could learn to fear the Lord and follow God. God's instructions on this matter go far beyond Deuteronomy, though. Think about the story of Ruth. Ruth was a foreigner from Moab who married a Jewish man who died, leaving her a widow. Culturally, Ruth should have returned to her native land to be reunited with her own family and her own people. Indeed, Naomi, her mother-in-law, encourages her to do just that. But Ruth won't leave. She had been shown so much love and kindness by Naomi that she proclaimed, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Ruth decided to forsake the beliefs of her own people in order to follow the one true God of Israel. Imagine what could happen if Christians all over the world welcomed, loved, and showed hospitality to the refugees, immigrants, and international students flooding into our countries. We could have a great harvest of people saying, I want your people to be my people, and your God to be my God. God's concern for the foreigner continues into the New Testament. Which commandments did Jesus proclaim as the greatest? Yep, love God and love your neighbor. He goes on to explain that your neighbor is not the person you expect, but the Samaritan, the foreigner, the one not like you, the one you would normally avoid. Jesus didn't just teach God's love for the foreigner, he demonstrated it by healing Gentile demoniacs, engaging in a spiritual debate with a Samaritan woman at a well, praising the faith of a Roman centurion, and celebrating the Gentile widow from Zarephath who fed Elijah. These were all foreigners, outcasts, strangers. In Acts chapter 2, who were the first people to hear the wonders of God in their own languages at Pentecost? It was the foreigners dwelling in Jerusalem. That's right, the first people to respond to the gospel when the Holy Spirit showed up were the nations living among the Jews. Paul makes God's intentions clear in his sermon at the Areopagus, where he proclaims, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What if we took that message to heart? What if the movement of peoples all over the world is not something to fear? What if the influx of immigrants, refugees, and international students is, in fact, a blessing, an opportunity orchestrated by God in order to fulfill the Great Commission? Historically, missions has been focused on leaving your context and going out to reach the nations, and that must continue. But perhaps welcoming is just as strategic in the mission for God to be glorified among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And remember, according to Ephesians 2, we were all strangers and foreigners, even enemies to the kingdom, before Jesus made a way for us to be citizens, children, and heirs. Pray, give, go, welcome. Where is God calling you? Good, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> I want to say that God has designed us for 
cross-cultural activity. The problem is that we haven't, we haven't seen ourselves that way. Think of it. Ever since the beginning, Adam and Eve, God designed, God's design for them was to live under his rule and spread the garden over the, the whole face of the earth. With Abraham and his family, God said, live under my rule and extend my blessing to all people, to all nations. With Jesus and his family, um, which is us, our call is to live under his rule and extend his kingdom over the face of the earth by making disciples. But the big question, the big question is this. What did Jesus have in mind? What did Jesus have in mind when he gave the, the command to us when Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you? What was he thinking? And I know that you've been wrestling with that because your theme reflects uh, exactly that. What does it look like to respond and say, here I am, Lord, use me. Here I am, Lord, Send me. So, first of all, I think that um, Jesus was thinking of this, a people movement. I think in Jesus' mind, he was thinking of, of a movement of people, disciples making other disciples, followers helping others become his followers. And this is not the same thing as a Bible study. This is not the same thing as a meeting. It's not the same thing as an outreach program. Jesus was thinking of a people movement. Another thing I think he was thinking of um, was a sending movement. A sending movement. He was sending all of us. We're all sent. We're all missionaries. Somehow, we need to stop thinking that while some go, others stay and send them. Like, like our, our video said, that must happen. But those are categories that we've created that have locked us into a way of thinking. They describe our programs. They describe... Um, um, a system by which we're sending people to the uttermost parts of the earth. But Jesus' way of thinking is that we're all missionaries. Uh, coming back from Italy um, has been, been, I would say it's interesting, but also difficult. And Chris talked about that a little bit um, in the first hour. There's a lot of things to miss about Italy. Let's face it, okay? Um, someone was asking me, what do you miss about Italy? And it's like, well, just get me started. And, you know, it's, it goes and goes. Um, but one of the things we've had to continually remind ourselves of is that we're not coming back from the mission field. Even though in our own minds, it, it can feel that way. That's the old way of thinking that's ingrained in us. 
We're going from one mission field to another mission field. Since when did North America stop being a mission field? Uh, but we're, so we're not coming off the mission field. We're all sent. Then there's this one. We follow God into mission. It's God who is on mission. And he's calling us to join him. Uh, we, we commonly think that missions is our task, that we're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But in reality, I think we need to change the way we think about this, and we need to realize that God is already out there in the ends of the earth. And he's calling us to come and join him there. It's like this. Think of it this way. Jesus is over at your neighbor's house. And he's calling to you from across the street, or maybe from across the fence. And he's saying, come and see what I'm doing in your neighbor's life. That's how we need to think about mission. God is calling us with him to join him on mission. So, take a closer look at the world. God's moving people all over the world like, like we've seen. And like Paul says in Acts 17, all over the planet, and he's moving them into blessing. He's moving them into areas where, they're, where they can get to know a Christ follower and where they can hear the gospel. And suddenly, the world is right next door. So, these are a few pictures that I think Jesus had in mind when he said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. But the Bible's full of a lot more pictures. And so I want to even go um, deeper and more practical. Okay? And so um, let's look at this one. The incarnation. The incarnation. Go and be. Go and be. This, this is the bedrock of mission. It's in the incarnation that we should anchor everything we think of about mission and start there. This is Jesus leaving his glory, dressing up like one of us, and entering our world. When he said, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you, that's what Jesus was talking about. So Jesus leaves his home, he leaves his glory, he enters our world as one of us, and when we enter a new culture, as Jesus did, we physically move into their reality. We take their language, we take their meaning system, and we work at making Jesus understandable to them. It's funny, isn't it, that Jesus really didn't stand out in a crowd um, until he became famous. But he was so much just like one of us. And it's amazing to think that, that God in his great plan to make everything right that went wrong at the beginning decided 
that to save mankind, he would enter mankind. That to save the world, he would become part of the world. So that he could offer up himself and deliver to that world salvation. That's the incarnation. And so, you know, when Paul says um, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. He was just following Jesus' example and living out the incarnation. A few years ago, we became friends with a Bosnian. I became friends with a Bosnian man. His name was Amar. And um, our kids were at the same elementary school, so at drop-off and pick-up, I would rub shoulders with this man. And the first time I saw him, just by you know, standing in the crowd waving to our, our children as they walk into the school, I could tell that he was European, okay? So I'm like wanting to stand you know, a little bit closer to him, see if I can hear his accent, try to figure out where he's from. And so one morning, I'm standing a little bit closer, and I just made the comment. I said, our, our kids are in the same class. And he goes, yes, yes. And there's silence. And uh, I'm thinking, man, what, now what do I say, you know? And trying to think of an intro, you know, something polished, some sort of methodology, and I can't think of anything. So I just go with my heart, and I say, hey, um, do you like coffee? And if you know anything about me, I like coffee. It's, I can talk about coffee. I can, I can drink coffee. I, I love, it's my passion. And so thankfully, he said, yes, I do. But, and he just adds out of the clear blue, I don't like McDonald's coffee. <laughs> I said, well, good. What kind of coffee do you like? Italian coffee. And I'm like, yes. So um, I suggested, let's get together for coffee. And he said, I said, you choose the place. Great. So we met at a coffee shop. It was a Bosnian coffee shop. And I entered this world I'd never been in before. Amar was from Bosnia. And the next time we got together, because over coffee, I, I found out that he loved music, as I love music. So the next time we met, we met in a music store. And we walk into the practice room. It's like everybody in the music store kind of knows this guy. I'm like, oh, who is this guy, you know? So he walks in, grabs a guitar off from the, you know, the wall, picks one of the really nice ones, and just, he's a virtuoso on the guitar, and I'm stunned. And um, so... It was all leading to us getting our families together. And then um, I did the unthinkable. I think in a moment of, of like insanity, um, I invited him to my church. I invited Amar and his family to come to the Christmas program at our church. And you know what? We never, ever heard from that family again. Chris and I had visions of, of sharing the gospel 
with that family. That was several years ago on a home assignment, and now everywhere I go in Grand Rapids, I'm watching for this man that I, so that I can somehow repair. You know what? Our Muslim friends, the first thing they want is not to go to an activity. They want to get to know us. We have a missionary family living in Chicago, uh, one of the 15 families that are working around the country. And um, they're living on the near north side of Chicago in what is called Little India. And so uh, they live amongst Muslim cultures that have been there. I think this enclave is like one of the historic ones or recent history, about 50 years or so in Chicago. Um, they, they're part of a missional community that's moved in there, I think about 17 people that have moved into this uh, neighborhood. And um, it's funny, Ben has this big, long beard, you know, this big beard, they call it. And, um, and recently, they sent out a prayer letter, and this is what it said. We're constantly meeting new neighbors. Recently, we've met folks from Malaysia, India, Pakistan, Thailand, Indonesia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Palestine, Morocco, and Myanmar. Ten different places from around the world. Some of which, and many of which, it's dangerous to be a believer there. Some of which you can't go to as missionaries. So, Noelle continues. She, she writes, A Pakistani friend asked Noelle during a long conversation about the gospel and Islam. And she said, Tell me the truth. Don't be afraid to offend me. I know you know the truth. So what is it? All of these conversations have taken place not inside of a church building. They've not taken place uh, in a foreign country. They've taken place in Chicago, right in our backyard. So Ben and Noel, dressed up in the skin of the local culture, and seeing the gospel bear fruit. Their language teacher last Christmas professed faith in Christ. So that's the incarnation. I think there's another picture too that we can look at, and that is the family. Make disciples. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. I believe, I used to believe that our task was threefold. One, evangelism. Activities, geared and aimed at the lost. Two, discipleship courses. Classes that, would enro- that we can enroll the newly saved in. And then leadership training. Courses and classes that we give to aspiring leaders. And probably the worst thing about that was I saw those things mainly happening within the four walls of the church. So what did the disciples hear when Jesus said, go and make disciples? I think there's a really good chance that the main picture they saw in their minds when Jesus said those words uh, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and I am with you always until the end of the age. I think the backdrop in their minds was what Moses said to the children of Israel 
in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think it was a picture of the family. Listen to this. This, Here's Moses giving the Great Commission in Deuteronomy 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you possess, that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. So, can you see the, the similarities between these, these two commissions? They use the same words, teach, obey, live out everything that I've commanded you. And so I think the disciples, when they heard those words, were saying, okay, guys, how are we going to carry this out? And this is the thing that, 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 that they were seeing in their minds. Moses gets super practical as he, as he, as he says how this whole thing works. In verses 5 and 6, he says, Love God and live wholeheartedly devoted to Him. In verse 7, he says, Talk about your faith and about God's Word all the time. At home, in the car, on a trip. To begin the day, to end the day. This is a natural part of what's happening in your family, in your family's routine. And then he even gets, I think, more practical. And he says, tie the Word of God to your hand. And so, if you tie the Word of God to your hand or on your arm, who sees it? You see it. And it reminds you that everything you do, all day, you're working out your faith in everything that you do. We're the hands and we're the feet of Jesus. And so this is living out the Word of God, living out the Gospel. And then he says, wear it on your forehead. And so if you put it on your forehead, who sees it? Everyone else. Everyone that you meet sees the Word of God on your face. And they can see that the Word of God is central to who you are. It, it, it's what... Uh, it controls your thoughts. It, it's your approach to life. When we got back to Grand Rapids, um, and I think it was the first morning we got up, we saw people walking down our street, and they were dressed in these colorful robes. And we thought it was like a... you know. We'd gone to sleep. We came home back from Italy. We'd 
gone to sleep and got up and we didn't know where we were. And then we realized that our neighborhood was full of Nepali. And Nepali have a spot or a mark on their forehead. Both the men and the women. And we asked ourselves, what does that mean? And it was just a, uh, a few months later that we were in Chicago and I was up on the near north side um, in Little India at the South Asian Friendship Center and the, the Indian pastor who, who leads the Hindu background believers group um, in this ministry um, was there and gave a question and answer time to us. And so I said, um, and he had one of these marks on his forehead. And I said, what does that mean? And so he explained. He said, the mark on the forehead um, reveals the approach to life that a person has. It talks about their philosophy. Um, it, of course, has many different um, spiritual um, meanings. For some, it has great spiritual meaning. For others, it's just a cultural spot that's, that's part of their culture. But it's basically a window into that person. And he explained, the spot that I have in my forehead represents the Word of God. And so when people see that, they ask me, what does that mean? And I get a chance immediately to share with them um, how the Word of God uh, it directs my whole approach to life. Moses said, put it on your forehead. Moses also said, write it on the doorposts of your house so that everyone that comes into your house will know that they're entering the home of a Christ follower. And he said, write it on the gate to your house so that everybody that walks by knows that in this house lives a family who are Christ followers. And if I need help, I can go there. If I need someone to pray with me, I can go there. You see, our international neighbors, Hindus, Muslims, they're people who are very spiritual. In their normal, everyday conversation, um, they talk about their faith. It's we Americans who have bought into a line that says your faith is private. You might offend someone, so don't talk about your faith. Moses was telling the children of Israel, live out loud. Live out loud. And one of the things about friendship evangelism that I think is, is uh, we need to be careful with is that if we don't speak to someone the first time we meet them or maybe the second time, it gets a little more difficult. And if we wait and we're building this friendship and then suddenly we pop on them something about Jesus, it's like we're not being transparent. We haven't been. You know, all these months I've not heard you say anything about Jesus and now suddenly you're talking about Jesus. Isn't it easier if, if we just live out loud and we talk about the Lord from the first time and the second time. And so now the door is open. It was easy then because the stakes were lower. And now our, our friends 
are encouraged and feel like they can talk to us about spiritual things. Okay? And so, the last picture. The table. Enacted grace. In Italy, we used to ask this question. How many pizzas does it take for an Italian, from the time they first hear about um, that they're relationship with Jesus should be personal until they finally uh, come to him and surrender their life to him. How many pizzas? Well, um, it takes on average seven years for an Italian to go from just being a cultural Christian to an actual follower of Jesus. Seven years. And it just, it just works out. I could tell you of a family who stood up one time in one of our meetings and they said, we've been with you for seven years. (laughs) They said that. And now we've decided that we want to become part of this family and believe. And so, um, so how many pizzas? That's a lot of pizza. That's a lot of pizza. But what could be better than pizza or lasagna in Italy? So the most powerful place on earth where cultures and worldviews converge is around the table. Think of it like this. God has always discussed his plans for the world in the context of a meal. The covenants, where two sides sit down and eat something together to celebrate an agreement. So a meal shared with our friends is the perfect place to let down your guard and to talk about the deep concerns of our lives. Jesus used mealtime to enact a message of grace. Eating with his enemies, the enemies of his people, the tax collectors, eating with social outcasts, the prostitute, eating with the untouchables, the Samaritan woman, and her whole village. In fact, um, I wonder with Steve and Natasha, if you haven't heard this maybe um, many times, 75% of international students will come and never be invited into the home of an American. 75%. And it's the easiest thing to do. What are we thinking? This is the easiest thing to do. Honestly, don't be like me and invite, the first thing you do, invite them to a church activity. Invite them to your home. Don't invite them to your small group, by the way. (laughs) Not at first. Because they'll see that they're an outsider. Invite them into your home. Don't take them to McDonald's, please. (laughs) Don't cater in food. Cook something for them so that you serve them. And you'll be surprised. They will want to cook something for you. And it will be really good. And suddenly now, your relationship begins to accelerate. Um, Luke's Gospel is full of stories of Jesus eating with people. In fact, I love this quote here uh, from a commentator who says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And it's true. Read the look. 
Read the book of Luke sometime and just think of it that way and see how much Jesus used mealtimes. In fact, our hope is tied into one great event that fills our thoughts about the future, and that is the banquet. When people from every tribe and every tongue, every nation will eat in the presence of the king. That's what we're looking forward to. And when we invite people in to eat at our table, we're enacting that grace. We're showing God's grace and we're opening ways for the gospel to penetrate into their hearts. You know, some want to push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians. But not Jesus. That's not Jesus. He showed us, all of us, how to reach into the heart of someone, regardless of their culture, of their language, of their religion, and find an open door there through relationship to share the gospel. Let's let our disciple-making, let's let our entire community be shaped around this place where Jesus did so much of his reaching out And that's around the table. So let me close with this. We we read these verses, Acts 17, where Paul is in Athens. Um, He's on the the Athenians' turf. Um, And there, isn't it interesting? He respects their religion. He quotes from their poetry. He aims his message right through their philosophical lens. And the gospel goes right into the hearts of some. And that's where we need to take our cue. God's already at work there. God's already involved in your neighbor's life. And the question is whether we will hear him calling us there and say, Here I am, Lord. Use me. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for the pictures that you have given us to understand what it is that you've called us to do. What it is that you have sent us to do who it is that you want us to be and how we are to use our lives where we work, where we study, where we play, where we live to make disciples. Oh Lord, help us. Help us not to be sold out to a line that says we should keep our faith to ourselves. Instead, Lord, may we trust that you are working, that you're already there. And Lord, may we join you. May we hear your voice. May all of us hear your voice today. Not just a few that go over a salt, a body of salt water into an unknown place, but all of us as we live 
as we tie the Word of God to our hands, to our doorposts, to our foreheads, and live it out before our neighbors. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen.